Father, let us stand upon the word of God, written and proclaimed, O Lord. Indeed, all other ground is no ground at all, O Lord, but sinking sand. Let us stand on the word of God this morning. You may be seated. You may be seated because even seated, we're standing on the rock of the word of God. I'm going to ask you to open this morning to Mark chapter 6. Again, in our series of gospel tales, oh, I don't know what number, I didn't write it down, I think it's the fifth in the series, of gospel stories renowned and some not so renowned and well-known. So I'm going to read this morning Mark six fourteen through 34, but I may actually read down to 44. I think that would be helpful for context. So let's go to Mark 6 this morning, verse 14, and I will begin reading. And so Mark writes, Now King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, It is Elijah. Others said it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. So she went and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude 
And he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, he His disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples and set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments of the fish. And those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Father, in Jesus' name, we regale the mighty miracles of Jesus Christ this morning and the gospel stories, O Lord. Amen. So you're probably wondering, why did he put these two great miracles together? Well, let's go into it. Verses 14 and 15 begin. Now King Herod, or rather the, the king, heard of Jesus... For his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is the prophet, prophet or like one of the prophets. So what's going on here? Friends, superstition was rampant then and now. It's po- what I call popular prophecy. I have another word for it, tabloid Christianity. It's tabloid Christianity. We believe it. If people, these people were believing things that they were too smart to believe. John the Baptist was resurrected from the dead in the person of Christ. And so tabloid Christianity, popular prophecy, was rampant in the time of Jesus. Even the king harbored his own superstitions. You know, the Herod family was very well known for being well studied in the scriptures. Paul spoke of it to the, to the uh, grandnephew of Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 25. There were many such spurious beliefs circulating in that time. Herod's suspicion that Jesus was John risen from the dead belongs to a whole family of false prophecies that hold that a prophet who was resurrected is stronger than he was in his first incarnation. Sort of a, an Elijah with the double powers of Elijah, or, or Elisha with the double powers of of Elisha. Now, anyone who was paying attention, friends, in Galilee, knew that Jesus was baptized by John and could not be identified with John. They were together, right? You would think Herod would have known that. Although John baptized primarily in Judea, you'd think he would have known that. Certainly, you would think someone would have known that. But much like in our time, being informed in the particulars is, was neither important nor widespread. John did not name his successor. He singled him out by his works, remember? He said, the blind will see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the poor will have the gospel preached to them. He even said, and the dead will be raised to life. 
He would be singled out. He would be known by the works. Herod, however, is revealed here as a typical conspiracy theorist. He was enamored with John. He liked him. Although, as you heard in the story today, he feared Herodias more than he feared John in the final analysis, didn't he? It was said that John did no mighty work, i.e. miracles. John didn't do miracles. It was now widely heralded that Jesus did many mighty works. And so the local superstition that Jesus was the reincarnation of John found substance in that fact. John's reemergence in the person of Jesus may have filled another need as well in the guilty conscience of a king who committed murder of one of God's prophets, right? Sometimes we believe something because it makes us feel good. Something, sometimes we believe something because we so hope that it is true. And maybe Jesus being reincarnated wiped away his sin of murdering the prophet. That's my little psychoanalysis of Herod. And so his belief was not so strong as his hope. And I think that's the reason why we adopt so many false beliefs. We prefer to believe the ones we like rather than the ones that are well-sourced. And we want always to be careful of that. The idea that Jesus was Elijah came closer to the point of Malachi's prophecy. You may remember Malachi wrote near the end of his of, um, of the book of Malachi, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Jesus settled that controversy for those closest to him. He said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so John, not Jesus, was the prophesied Elijah of the last days. Now I have a note here for you in your notes. We are not talking here of John being the reincarnation of Elijah. We do know that, right? He's merely a type of Elijah, just as Moses and Joseph and David and others are types of Christ, but they're not Christ, right? They're not former incarnations of Christ. So let's not start any new conspiracy theories in our time. The third option that Mark gives us is that Jesus was the prophesied prophet. Now that probably comes closest um, uh, to the correct view of the Lord. We read from Moses in Deuteronomy, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, and you shall hear him. And it seems this guest comes closest to the reality of his being the prophesied Messiah. And then what does Mark do? After he talks about all this superstition, and the superstition even of the king, he tells the story of John's demise, which is well known, I think, to us. I've preached on it many times. I refer to it often. And we see this sudden nervous hysteria in the masses as they scramble for teachings. Their prophet is gone. And they're scrambling for teaching. They are indeed sheep without a shepherd. Verses 32 and 33, we read this. So Jesus and the apostles departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. They were tired and hungry from ministering for many days. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. Jesus and the apostles got in a boat and tried to escape and went to a little other section of the shore. But these people were so frantic for leadership. Sheep without a shepherd, they ran there and got there before 
Jesus and the disciples in the boat. It says they arrived before them and came together to him. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing a popular hysteria. The prophet is dead, brutally murdered. And the masses cry out, the prophet is gone. Where is Jesus? John is dead. Jesus lives. There he is in the boat. There he is on the shore. Run to him quickly. Maybe he has better news to tell us. So they ran to Jesus. They got there before he did. And then I wrote in my notes, they traveled at the speed of faith. But you know, as I think of it, it may have been the speed of fear. Now, like most news, how did you get news in Palestine? How did you get news 30 years ago? (laughs) I'll tell you how you got news in Palestine in the first century by word of mouth. There's a word for it. It's called gossip. That's how you got news. It spreads fast. And it spread really fast in Jesus' time. And that's the way you got your news. Now, there was good gossip and bad gossip. These are terms I'm making up, okay? There's good gossip and there's bad gossip. What's good gossip? It's gossip that makes you feel good. And what's bad gossip? It's gossip that makes you feel bad, right? But it's still just gossip. It may or may not be true. You know, when it goes from one person to the other, you know how the old game goes, right? By the end of it, it's just rumor. (laughs) That's right. Like... Most news in Palestine, it was spread by word of mouth. Now, we touched on a moment of it last week when we read of Jairus' daughter having expired while the teacher tarried with the woman with the flow of blood. You remember the story? Jairus comes out to Jesus, asks him to heal his daughter. Jesus knew him previously from being in his synagogue and teaching really several times. If you follow through Mark's gospel, you'll see that's the case. Peter and Andrew would have grown up in that town. Jairus would have been a, the elder in the church, sort of like a pastor to them, maybe an older gentleman, but he had a daughter, and she was sick, and she was near death, and he came out and he asked Jesus to come and heal her, and Jesus leaves, and on the way, the crowd was so intense. You remember, like, this multitude here, and they pressed in against him, and he said, who touched me? You remember the story, and it was the woman with the flow of blood, and she was immediately healed, and he commended her for that. But while he tarried with her, something else happened. He was on his way to heal, but he was touched. And he wasn't touched by sloppy sentimentality. He was touched by unrelenting spiritual surrender. It was a last-ditch effort to be healed. And the healing is rendered. And while the miracle is happening, While the teacher takes a moment to expound upon the power of faith, the news of the child's death comes to them. See how fast the gossip comes? How much time could that have taken? And suddenly, not only did the child die, but the news came to them. Some people like bearing news too well, I think. Methinks, I should say. And so the Savior stands in the gap, friends, between hearing and believing. He commands the Father, do not be afraid, only believe. In other words, you heard the bad gossip. It did its job. It's making you fear and despair. But before you do that, just believe that I am him whom God sent to you. Just believe. Take that moment in that gap. There it is, friends. There's the moment between Hearing the alarm and being alarmed. We all know that place 
in our lives. There's the power of the enemy to steal the power of faith. He can't steal our faith, but he can feel he can steal the effectiveness of it. And it's like that moment when the disciples feared that the waves and the current would capsize their little boat. They forgot the boat can't capsize if the Savior's in the boat. Oh, you have little faith, he said to them. <laughs> I'm right here. When bad news is heralded, the people of God should take a moment to remember that it's our faith that overcomes the world. If we would take a mere moment to reflect upon the Savior and not upon the news, we too may find that there is yet a way of escape. There's yet a safe place to flee to. Let's call it a high place of observation from which the seeing eye of faith may find its God-given sense of calm and look down upon a world that's hell-bent on believing its own news as soon as it's published, as soon as it's broadcasted. Hasn't been fact-checked yet. And until it's fact-checked by the Savior, it could still be false. Consider this. A false report can stir alarm in you as surely as a true report. Right? It's the hearing of it that does it. It might be false. It might be true. But it's the hearing of it that stirs us. We have this thing in us that immediately says, if I heard it, it's true. Friends, it's a weakness. Now, I've been pleading in these troubled times for all of us to be skeptical of media, even the voices we've come to respect. And I'll double down on that plea this morning. Now, some of us are thinking that I'm speaking to someone else. Someone maybe not as smart as you. Or as informed as you. Well, I'm not. I'm speaking to you. Do not trust your sources. Not completely. Not the way you trust Christ. Don't trust everything you hear immediately. It's a weakness. It weakens your faith. It can't steal it, but it can weaken it. The secular media, the well-known spin factories, parachurch organizations, are all usurping the role of the local church into which God has placed us with competent leaders and spiritual gifts and steady, biblically informed voices and the ever-present Holy Spirit to guide us. Friends, we have tools, not alone. All we need is discernment. Take a moment. Grow up in our faith. Paul wrote of this very thing when he said to the Corinthians, you know, God, he said, has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. The gifts are here, friends. We're small, but the gifts are here. The Holy Spirit's here. Two or three are gathered. He'll be there. So we're well served. We're on a steady course. Hysteria and superstition are unnecessary and unproductive. Do not fret, the psalmist wrote. It only causes harm. Believe me, I do my share of fretting. I do my share of violating that moment in my own life. But as I'm growing older, I'm saying to the Lord, you know, I'm 65 now and a man of faith for once in my life. How about I don't fret when I hear the news? How about I meditate on the Savior before I yell at the TV? Poor TV takes a beating, doesn't it? Friends, remember a couple of things in your lives. The cable channel you like does not like you. It doesn't love you. The website does not know you. 
The blogger is content to alarm you and to add you to his list of alarmists and hysteria spreaders. It's only the church that's motivated by the love of Christ. He had compassion on them and taught them many things. Fox News isn't teaching us because they have compassion on us. It's for ratings. It's for something else. It's only the church that's motivated by the love of Christ and the love of the souls of those who love Christ and are gathered in his name. And so, and so Paul wrote this to the churches. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by rumor, wars and rumors of wars, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Every breath of the enemy's mouth is another doctrine to tempt to frighten those who he should not be able to frighten. By the trickery of men, it's on purpose, in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, plotting, people are plotting things against the church, but speaking the truth in love will grow up in all things, even him who is the head, Christ. The fact that a false report can stir us to alarm is certainly as a true report gives the bearer of news much more power than he deserves. And in our present evil world, with a 24-hour news cycle, friends, with updates ringing in our pockets while we're walking along the way. Remember walking along the way? You're supposed to teach these statutes to your children when you're walking along the way, but no, I got an update. I can't tell you how many good conversations were destroyed because someone got an update on what's happening with the Patriots and wanted to read it to me right then and there. We're the only culture in history that has that much noise in our brains. We need to live in that moment, in that gap with Jesus more than any other culture, more than any other time in history. And so there's the Lord's tale within a tale. I gave you these two great and mighty stories. The execution of the prophet the multiplication of the loaves. But I want to focus on the fact that Jesus had compassion. He saw that they were sheep without a shepherd, and he taught them many things in that moment. We read last week that he tarried on his way to heal by healing one that was on his way. While the one was warm by his touch, the other went cold by his absence. And so the deathly chill of bad tidings tries to have the last word, but not with Christ. Only believe, the Savior said. She's not dead, but sleeping. There's the final word. Once again, we're immersed in a gospel tale that is inextricably bound to the other moments of Jesus' life. First, there's the story of the death of John the Baptist. A mighty tale of martyrdom, of the greatest prophet of them all, as declared by Jesus himself. And then there's the story... It's well told by all the synoptists. Who are the synoptists? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right? Differing emphasis with, by, with each of them. 
And then there's the awesome miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 from a single lunch basket. One of the most extraordinary tales of all. And apart from the various resurrection stories, the raising of Lazarus, the reviving of the son of the widow of Nain, he was at his own funeral and Jesus made him stand up. And the calling of the daughter of Jairus back to life from the dead. One of, it, this feeding of the 5,000 remains one of the mightiest miracles on record. And so our subject today is carefully couched between the horror of the beheading and the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Now both are wonderful gospel tales in and of themselves and both deserve their own place in our series. However, there's another story here. Perhaps it's an obscure reference. I'm sure that it is. It may qualify, I suppose, as an insignificant moment or passing consideration. It may even be considered by some as just a bit of connective tissue to tie the two stories together. But I've clung to this notion as a pastor my whole life. I've spoken of it in my sermons, and I've treasured the lesson of it in my ministry. And so we read verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He was moved with compassion, so he taught quintessential act of love. Every parent knows it. Teach your children. It's, the only, it's only the Christian, rather, that knows that teaching is a great act of love. Jesus and the apostles saw the leaderless masses yearning and seeking and running to hear more of gospel love and of gospel deliverance. They ran. They outran the boat. They were in a quandary. They're, The Baptist was dead. Their leader was dead. They'd followed him and depended on him. And they were left in that moment to find another to follow and another to depend on. And what were Jesus and the apostles doing? Just seeking a moment of respite from all their labors. Just seeking a momentary time of peace and reflection. They were just going off by themselves to have something to eat and lay down in the grass. I thought it was... I thought it was really pictorial that he called it the green grass. You know, there's not a lot of green grass in Palestine for most of the year, but apparently there was at that time, and they lied down in the green, green grass of home. (laughs) So we read from the passage this, this very thing. The apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught, And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place, and we'll rest for a while. Even Jesus needed a rest. There were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. There's no rest for ministers of the gospel, friends. That's not a complaint. It's just a prophecy. I fully expect that as times get more and more frantic, as strange politics and strange diseases and and strange cures rear their ugly heads as liberties erode and our old familiar allies turn their heads and walk away. Those who are commanded to gather and to teach will have to do so, and they'll have to do so all the more as they see the day approaching, to quote Hebrews. And so there's the story for today. Here's the gospel tale. In that elusive nanosecond between fear 
and outright despair, there's a whole world to contemplate in that moment. And this is the void that may not be seen. It's like a crack in the sidewalk, that void, that moment. You might step over it, or you might stand there and ponder the width of it or the depth of the crack. Most likely not. But I think that's what Jesus is telling them to do. Jairus wanted to step over that crack, and Jesus said in that moment, don't fear. Just believe, I'm still here. I said I'd come. I stopped on the way to help someone else, but I'm still coming. I'm still the Lord. I'm still the healer. Only believe, he said. You can step over that crack without notice, or you can stand on it and consider it. And if you're a postmodern consumer of media, your brain may be too noise-polluted to hear it. But this is a place where the message of the Lord wants to meet you. If you're running to who knows where, this is the destination that faith awaits you. You've claimed it, and now faith wants to claim you. And so the Lord and his disciples, tired and famished, have no time to consider their own needs. Love would have them do otherwise than take their rest and lick their own wounds. Love says, teach. You know, I was with Karen the other day. We were down in Plymouth on a beach. I was thinking how I would incorporate this story, but I think I'm just going to tell you the way, the way I saw it. And we're sitting on the beach, and we go late in the day because we're only going to stay an hour, so why pay the fee, right? Plus, it's hot late in the day. On these hot days, we sit by the beach. I love that cold water, and we go in. And it's not very crowded, but we looked over, just over a little ways from us, and there was these two girls, maybe 24 years old, and um, they were these two semi-attractive fat girls in their bikinis. And they had the red and the green and the blue and the, and the lay around the head with flowers and the, and the decorations all over and the tattoos. And they were showing off their sexual love for one another on the beach. And I thought, I remember days when that would not have been done. And Karen said something, and, it, and I thought of it ever since. She said, isn't it sad that they have no one to guide them and teach them? Maybe that's all they would have needed. And instead they went to this place. And they do it publicly because that's what you do now. They were just sheep without a shepherd. And no one had compassion enough to just teach them at a time when they would have been teachable. And they could have led productive lives. Am I judging them too harshly? Not in the, not in the final sense I'm not. I mean, I know nothing about them except they chose to revel in their sin publicly. Compassion de declares that school is open and has begun. Love says teach. The bell is rung and the schoolmaster standing at the chalkboard. He could have dismissed them. But if he did, how could he gather them again? And so the scripture says that they're sheep without a shepherd. So rather than wait for the wolf to arrive and consume the sheep, 
the shepherd stands in the midst of them and performs the quintessential act of Christian love he teaches in that moment. Before the miracle, after the execution, while they were scrambling, and he told them, just sit down on the grass. I'm going to tell you many things. Now, what do you suppose he taught that day? The evangelist doesn't tell us. But thankfully, your pastor knows what he taught. It's a gift. No, really, I don't think it should be too difficult to figure out what he might have taught. Remember, friends, these were Jews. They were taught the scriptures all their lives. But like all disciples, we need to hear the basic teachings of our faith over and over. I believe Jesus preached the tenets of the servant on the mount a dozen times. Easily. In three years? You add up the teaching that you have in the Bible, it won't cover three years. He preached the same stuff over and over. They were different crowds. Or he would teach the same stuff to the same crowd. Why wouldn't he? So they were taught the scriptures all their lives. But like all disciples, they need to hear the basic teachings of their faith over and over. Peter says it very pointedly. He said, for this reason I'll not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them, and are established in the present truth. And then he says, moreover, I'll be careful to ensure you always that you have a reminder of these things. In other words, I, I intend to be repetitive. Now my boys will say, yeah, he's an old guy. They keep saying the same things over and over. But I'm an old guy too. And I say the same things over and over, but I think it's biblical to do that. So I think Jesus taught some of the same things that he taught elsewhere. And so they would be taught very simple things. He tells them that there are sources, true and false, right? You can't believe every source. And that they are to immerse themselves in the fundamental truths of Scripture. So what did he say through Paul the Apostle? We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Other men have cunningly devised fables, but not the apostles. He said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Friends, People preach their opinions today as though they're that impeccable and unimpeachable, but they're not. Only the Word of God can say that. It's not up to anyone's private interpretation. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I see a lot of prophecies come by the will of man, and those are the prophecies that don't come true in almost every case. And so the teacher establishes who he is, that God is his source, and the written word is his lesson plan. Now, how do you suppose he taught? I should imagine that Jesus taught very systematically. Now, why would I say that? I think he taught systematic theology built upon foundational biblical principles. I think he reminded them what the principles were. Remember Isaiah? Isaiah gave us a a way of teaching. He said, whom will he teach knowledge? Speaking of the Messiah when he comes. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept. 
precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. In other words, break it down. Give me an outline and teach the concepts that Christians should know so we can base our faith on them. Systematic teaching. He taught repetitively. repetitively, I'm quite certain he did. And he taught systematically. I'm quite certain he did that as well. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said this, but I say this. You've heard them say this about murder and this about divorce. I say this about those things. Systematic teaching brought it about. The writer of Hebrews spoke of teaching as well. And he said, we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. In other words, we have to hear it again. He goes on, though. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. That's certainly what he's saying to these disheveled masses, sheep without a shepherd. They've lost their way. They shouldn't have. They had the scriptures their whole lives. But when they saw John was so fragile and vulnerable to the hate of a queen and a little dancing girl, That had to shake them up. And so when the multitudes are shaken, when their leaders are disappearing, they begin to fret and worry about many things. Just as Jesus said once to the beloved sisters of Bethany, remember Martha and Mary? Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. How many sermons do you suppose have been taught with that as its title? One thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. He loved them both. And that was a mild reproof, believe me. That good part was to sit at the feet of Jesus and be taught while he's with you. Surely he said this to the wondering multitudes, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Imagine running around an arid countryside like that, bringing no food, just wanting to hear something truthful from the prophet of the moment. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think he taught them that again. They needed to calm down and sit on the green grass. And I'll bet you that the only ones that were worried about feeding them all when they were being fed this, for man does not live by bread alone, was a few nervous apostles. In those times as in these, there's always the ever-ready fear of man to overwhelm us and spur us to destructive thoughts and unproductive action. Surely he reminded them that men will threaten and wield whatever power they may, But he said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He taught him that too. I have no question that he taught him that. These were a fearful bunch. Hey, we all are a fearful bunch. They might have said something like this as well. He might have said to them, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's what this is. That's what teaching is about. It's armor. It's arming you for the ever-present real war that goes on swirling about us every second. Able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Cunningly devised plans. Evil plotting. 
For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he said, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Friends, without the word of God, how can we possibly stand up under that kind of an onslaught? Satan is ancient of days. He knows the scripture better than we'll ever know it. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, then stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. That's what we're doing now. We're reminding ourselves we have weapons. We have tools. We have gifts. We have God, the Holy Spirit. And then gird your waist with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Friends, that's not a breastplate. It's actual righteousness that's your breastplate. It's acting right. That's what righteousness is. And having shod your feet with the gospel of peace. In other words, spread the gospel as you go about. It's a feet thing. Remember beautiful feet of those who bring glad tidings? And above all, take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery dots of the wicked one. That's what Jairus did when he listened to Jesus only believe. The faith, the shield came up against the gossip. The shield of faith absorbed it, quenched it. And then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And guess what? You have offensive weapons too. The helmet is, the helmet is offensive as well as defensive. It says whose army you belong to. And the word of God is the sword of the Spirit, friends. That's what you wield, and it is mighty. What does it say in Revelation? A sword will come out of his mouth. That's the word of God. I don't think that's an actual sword. It makes a nice poster, but I don't think it's an actual sword. I would almost guarantee you that he would have taught them again these things. I bet he would have said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He would have said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, think long term. <laughs> Look at the big picture. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, he said. Be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, if you want to belong to the long procession of prophets down through the ages, they have to deal with the persecution of the prophet. He who receives the prophet receives the prophet's reward. I'm, I have no doubt he would have given him this reminder that was later put into print by his biological brother, James. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. For i got to tell you, I have not mastered that, but that's what we're called to do. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Have you ever taken that moment, though, in that gap and said, Lord, I hate when this happens, but I'm going to count it as joy right now. I'm going to smile at it. Count it all joy when you fall into trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In other words, there's a method to it. It's to, it's to teach patience. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Have you forgotten that? We don't have the answers. Your pet website doesn't have the answers, I can tell you that. I'm going to tell you who your pet website is. It's a kid in his 20s smoking pot in his parents' basement who in his free time is smoking pot and playing video games online with kids all over the world who are smoking pot and playing video games in their parents' basements. 
If you lack wisdom, ask it of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Faith produces stability. Double-mindedness, instability. Faith brings stability. He would have taught them that because they were all so double-minded that day. just means in doubt, in doubt of the basic truths. And I'm quite certain he wouldn't have let them leave before he offered them this great assurance. He would have said to them, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. But even the Baptist being beheaded, yes, even the Baptist being beheaded, he would have said, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Are you, are you the, a member of the called according to God's purpose? Then you have this assurance. Whatever's happening is somehow for the good. We still try to pray our way out of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. He told us we can do that. Whatever you ask in my name, right? But he goes on with the, insur- the assurance. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You're predestined by God to be conformed to the image of His Son. It can't fail. The big thing's taken care of. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You see though what He's saying? Those things can come upon you, but they can't separate you from the thing that really matters. It's an assurance passage. They do come upon you. As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. There's a prophecy for you. We ought to be expecting of it, that the church is under attack today. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I did a whole series many years ago called More Than Conquerors. I think I should go back and and dig it out again. I'm persuaded... Paul writes that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm certain he would have taught them that. Quite certain. And I'm quite certain that the Lord would have taught these lessons of love and compassion and assurance and power, and then he would multiply their every earthly provision, because man does not live by bread alone, but he does live by bread. And so the multitudes could be fed and strengthened. Another act of love, feed the multitudes. You ever go to your grandmother's house? I used to go to my grandmother's house, and she'd start fretting. She lived across the street. We just walked across the street, went to grandma's. We knew something was going to happen probably going to get fed there. And she started looking around. And one day I heard her talking to herself. And she went, Danny, Danny, what can I give you? What can I give you? That's a grandmother's love. Feed the child. (laughs) What did he say to Jairus? And the girl got up, give us something to eat. With the miracles here, now do the hospitality part. And so John writes, and Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. And the number of them was 5,000 men and innumerable women and children. Father, in Jesus' name, quiet us in the gap between faith and alarm, O Lord. 
We pray that we would recognize that you are always with us, just like you were with Jairus on the road to healing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.